Everyone loves to listen to a good book, and there are so many wonderful ones to choose, so we decided to bring you this podcast of Stories Come to Life. Each episode features a story from either classic or modern literature, especially chosen to be interesting and exciting to hear. So sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Welcome to Stories Come to Life. I am your host, Catherine Lopez Luker. It is with great pleasure that I am able to announce that Simon & Schuster Publishing Company has given permission for this book to be read out loud and shared on Stories Come to Life until June 30th, 2024. But of course, the episodes that fall under that special permission will all be taken down on that date, so listen now while they're available. Do you remember the sullen and rather rude girl who applied to become the housekeeper for the Drew family? Well, Mary Mason is back in the story. How could this rather shabbily dressed young woman have found enough money to purchase expensive dresses and other clothing items? Nancy has a faint suspicion that there may be some connection between Mary's extravagant spending and the robbery at Lilac Inn. Now if she can only find some common thread. Now sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Nancy Drew and the Mystery at Lilac Inn Chapter 11 A Trip to the Inn After leaving the Heidelberg shop, Helen Corning drove Nancy Drew home in her runabout. She declined an invitation to remain for dinner. It's getting late, and I really can't stop, she said. I'll see you again in a few days. If you should hear anything about Mary Mason, I wish you'd let me know. I certainly will, Nancy, but I imagine you can find her at Lilac Inn. She probably found work there. Helen said goodbye, and with a wave of her hand drove away, leaving her chum standing on the curb. As Nancy Drew walked toward the house, she reviewed the events of the afternoon. The more she considered Mary Mason's peculiar actions, the more puzzled she became. Where had the girl secured money? When she had called at the Drew household seeking work, she had been rather shabbily dressed, but at the store Nancy had noticed that she was wearing an expensive gown. Of course, it's possible she found work, she reasoned, but even if she did, it's not likely her wages would be enough to permit her to buy dresses at Heidelberg's. I can't understand it at all. Probably I'm doing Mary Mason an injustice, she told herself, but I feel I owe it to Emily to investigate every clue. I wish there were fewer, or that a few of them were clearer. Nancy paused on the veranda and glanced at her wristwatch. It was after five o'clock and she could hear Mrs. Carter bustling about in the kitchen, preparing dinner. I'll have time to run out to Lilac Inn, if I hurry, she decided. Pausing only long enough to tell Mrs. Carter that she might be a few minutes late for dinner, she backed her roadster from the garage and started off down the lake road. Arriving at the inn, she swept up the driveway and came to a halt in front of the door. There were only a few automobiles parked nearby, and Nancy guessed that the scandal of the loss of the jewelry had already affected the trade. Entering the inn, she sought the manager and was conducted to a private office. I'm sorry to trouble you again, Nancy apologized, but I find I must ask you a few more questions. I'll answer them gladly the manager returned graciously. Have you a girl in your employ by the name of Mary Mason? Mary Mason, hmm, there's no one here by that name. Perhaps she applied for work. Not that I can recall. Can you describe her appearance? Nancy gave a detailed description of Mary. But when she had finished, the manager of the inn shook her head. I'm certain that she never came here. In fact, if she had, I would have hired her at once, for I am short a girl in the kitchen. 
That's queer, Nancy murmured half to herself. Helen told me the girl said she would come here. She must have changed her mind. Perhaps she found work at another tea room. That's possible, Nancy agreed as she rose to leave. I'll try to find out. Driving back toward River Heights a few minutes later, she was ready to admit that the trip to Lilac Inn had been unfruitful. Apparently, she had been unjustly suspicious of Mary Mason, for if the girl had never been employed at the inn, it was ridiculous to attempt to connect her with the robbery. Just the same, I'd like to know where she got that handsome dress she was wearing this afternoon, Nancy thought. I think I'll try to find out where she is working. Upon reaching home, she found that she was just in time for dinner. Mrs. Carter had prepared an excellent meal, but Nancy was a trifle preoccupied as she ate. Carson Drew noticed how quiet she was and surmised the reason. Not worrying about the Willoughby case, are you, Nancy? he questioned. I'm afraid I am, Nancy admitted reluctantly. So far I have not made any headway. What seems to be the trouble? I can't get a real clue. I thought perhaps I had one this afternoon, but it didn't amount to that. Nancy snapped her fingers contemptuously. Want me to take charge? No, Nancy returned slowly. I haven't given up yet. Mrs. Willoughby came to my office this afternoon. She's beginning to expect results. I'm doing my best, Dad. I know you are, Nancy. I'm not trying to rush you. Only I'm afraid things are coming to a crisis. You mean the police are going to arrest Mrs. Willoughby? I'm afraid of it. If I just had a clue, something to start work on. There are some mystery cases that have never been solved, Mr. Drew remarked by way of comfort. This may be one of them. I won't admit defeat, Nancy retorted, thrusting her chin into the air. Let's thrash this thing out together, Mr. Drew said kindly. Whom are you considering as the possible criminal? Well, there's Mrs. Potter. She was reluctant to give me any information about herself. What motive would Mrs. Potter have? I understand that she has plenty of money of her own. She hasn't a grudge against Mrs. Willoughby. Not to my knowledge. Then, of course, there is that waiter at the Lilac Inn. Jennings, they call him. You questioned him? Yes, and didn't learn anything of value. How about the persons who were guests at the inn at the time of the robbery? I've considered them all. The two who took the auto victims to the hospital are out of the picture. They had a perfect alibi. And the women who were unwilling to be searched, especially the one who protested loudly? I've not learned anything of much interest about her. Wasn't her name Viola Granger? Yes, it was. That name strikes me as familiar. I'm sure I've heard it somewhere. Oh, can you remember? Nancy asked eagerly. Let me see. Oh, now I have it. That woman has a prison record. A prison record, Nancy exclaimed. Are you certain? Yes. The affair happened at least ten years ago. But I have a good memory for names. As I recall, she was sentenced to five years in prison. On what charge? Robbery. Then you think it was she who took the jewels? The clue may be worth investigating. But I don't see how she could have been the one, Nancy declared with a troubled frown. She was sitting on the opposite side of the room, a long way from Mrs. Willoughby's table. Several of the guests were willing to swear that she never stirred from her chair, even when the others rushed to the windows. Hmm, that does seem to explode the theory, doesn't it? Well, take the tip for what it's worth. I'll see what I can find out about Viola Granger, Nancy promised, but I really don't see that she had the opportunity to take the jewels. Once a thief, always a thief, they say, Nancy. Then, with that excitement, can you be sure that your witnesses knew what they were talking about? Perhaps not. After all, Nancy, the police may be right. Suspicion points more strongly to Mrs. Willoughby than to anyone else. 
She had motive, and she had the opportunity. Oh, Dad, don't say that. Poor Emily. Oh, I won't let myself think she's guilty. Emily's a dear dad, and that would break her heart, I'm sure. After a time, Nancy left the dinner table and went to her own room. She tried to write a letter, but she found that she could not keep her mind off the Crandall robbery. Emily is depending upon me, she thought miserably. I'm beginning to think that I may fail her. Over and over she sifted the evidence, but found it impossible to arrive at a conclusion as to the person guilty of the robbery. At last, in sheer disgust, Nancy tumbled into bed. Chapter 12 A New Discovery The following morning, Nancy Drew's mood of despondency had fallen from her. She rose with new enthusiasm and eagerness to continue her investigations. Yet she scarcely knew which way to turn. There were so many clues which needed unraveling, and time was short. The problem was somewhat simplified for her when at breakfast her father volunteered to find out what he could concerning Viola Granger. Oh, that will save me a lot of trouble, Nancy told him gratefully. I have another clue I want to work on this morning. Anything worthwhile? I'm afraid not, Dad. It's a cry of desperation, I fear. Well, good luck. Thanks, I'll need it. It was Nancy's intention to learn whether or not Mary Mason had found employment, for she had not entirely given up the idea that in some way the girl might be connected with the mysterious disappearance of the Crandall jewels. To be sure, she did not have a particle of evidence to back up her theory, except the seemingly sudden access of money, and that, she acknowledged, was too weak a foundation on which to build a theory. Yet, she told herself, she dared not neglect any pointer, no matter how feeble. She was at a loss to know where to begin her search until she recalled the references which the girl had displayed when applying at the Drew household for work. Let me see, Nancy mused, unless I'm mixed up on it. I believe she worked for a woman by the name of Stonewall. I'll look in the directory and see if I can find a family listed by that name. Thumbing through the telephone book, she found several Stonewalls, and at length came upon the one she was seeking. Mrs. Howard Stonewall, she read aloud, 1504 Sixth Street. I'm sure that was one of the names mentioned in the reference. I'll call her and ask about Mary Mason. With her hand on the receiver, Nancy hesitated. After a moment's thought, she replaced the telephone on the stand, deciding that she could probably secure more satisfactory information by calling in person upon the woman. Accordingly, she went to the garage for her roadster, and while she was still enthusiastic, started on the mission. Nancy Drew was familiar with River Heights and had no difficulty in reaching 6th Street, which was in the better section of the city. Presently, she caught sight of the number for which she was searching and stopped in front of a well-built brick house. Mary Mason must have held a fairly good position, she thought, as she hurried up the walk. She rang the bell and was admitted by a maid. Nancy asked to see Mrs. Stonewall, declining to state her business. Her confident bearing had its effect upon the servant, who went at once to summon her mistress. She returned almost immediately, saying that Mrs. Stonewall would see her in the drawing-room. "'What can I do for you?' Mrs. Stonewall asked pleasantly, as she offered the girl a chair. "'I'm not certain that I've come to the right place,' Nancy returned. "'You see, I'm tracing a girl by the name of Mary Mason.' <gasps> "'Mary Mason!' the woman exclaimed sharply. "'Yes. Did she work for you?' "'Indeed she did.' Mrs. Stonewall returned dryly, that is, at one time. Then, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you a few questions about her. Why should I answer them? Is she in trouble? I can't tell you the details of the case, Mrs. Stonewall, but she is under suspicion. You will be doing the law a service if you tell me all you know about her. 
I see you're a detective, Mrs. Stonewall said in an odd tone. I'll tell you everything I know about her, which isn't a good deal. She worked for me five or six months ago. I kept her for a month and let her go. A month? Nancy questioned in surprise. She recalled that in the reference Mary Mason had displayed, it was stated that the girl had been employed by Mrs. Stonewall for more than a year. Yes, she did not prove satisfactory. I really hated to discharge her, for she came from a very poor family, and no doubt needed the money. Still, I couldn't put up with her insolent manners. You gave her a good recommendation, I think. Indeed, I didn't. That's odd, Nancy commented. Mary Mason applied at my home for work, and I remember that she showed me a recommendation from you. Then it was forged. Have you any idea where this girl is working now? Oh, she changes positions so often that I've given up keeping track of her. However, I do know that up until yesterday, she was out of work. I happened to meet her on the street and asked her. After turning her away without a recommendation, my conscience troubled me, and I made up my mind that when I met her again, I would make it a point to find out if she were in need. Did you offer her money? No, I didn't, Mrs. Stonewall admitted. From her clothing, it was apparent that she was well provided with funds. In fact, I was amazed. I'm sure her family can't provide her with luxury. Have you any idea where I can find her at present? I'm afraid I can't tell you where she lives. I remember she used to visit a brother of hers who resided in Dockville. But whether or not she's living with him, I can't say. Dockville, isn't that up the river? Yes, about three miles from here. It's a very disreputable section. There's one more question I'd like to ask, Nancy said as she rose to depart. While this girl was working for you, did you ever miss anything? No, I can't say that I did. That is, nothing of value. I suspect that she frequently took food from the kitchen. But that is an old trick of unreliable help, you know. Nancy thanked Mrs. Stonewall for the information and took her departure. When she stepped upon the running board of her roadster, she was undecided what to do next. Should she drop the search for Mary Mason? Or chance an unsuccessful trip to Dockville? To Dockville it is, she determined. As Nancy drew shifted gears, she told herself that in all probability she would waste the entire morning on a wild goose chase. She knew that it was unwise to devote so much time to Mary Mason when she didn't have an iota of proof that the girl was connected with the mystery at Lilac Inn. Yet for the life of her, she could not force herself to return home. Until she talked with Mary, she would never feel satisfied. Nancy drove toward the river, zigzagging her way from one street to another. The pavement was poor, and as she approached the slum district, it became even more bumpy. I'd hate to get a puncture, she thought anxiously. At last, she reached the district known as Dockville, and, at a loss to know how to proceed, made a complete circle of the section. She was confronted with row upon row of tenement houses, all alike, and of a dingy and uninviting appearance. Swarms of dirty children were playing in the streets, making it necessary for Nancy to watch her driving closely. I'll never be able to locate Mary Mason here, she thought in dismay. I never dreamed so many people could crowd into one section. After driving a few blocks, she stopped her roadster and inquired of a woman where she could find a family by the name of Mason. The woman shook her head without replying, and Nancy knew that she had not even understood the question. Going on a little further, she stopped at a drugstore, but the druggist was unable to help her. At random, she questioned persons on the street, but no one had heard of Mary Mason. I guess it's hopeless, Nancy thought in disappointment. This is worse than hunting for a needle in a haystack. 
Nancy was convinced that the trip to Dockville had been a wasted one, but because it was not her nature to give up easily, she was unwilling to return home without at least one more effort. Without considering where she was going, she turned into a winding, narrow street which led along the riverfront. She drove slowly, studying the houses critically, though she had little hope of finding the one for which she was searching. For all she knew, she might have passed it unwittingly. The dwellings on this street were even more squalid and dingy than the tenements, and were set back a considerable distance from the road. Apparently, many of the buildings had been deserted, for windows were broken out, roofs sagged, and the yards were choked with weeds. Nancy knew that only the most poverty-stricken lived among the docks. There were few persons to be seen in the vicinity, and those she did pass stared at her so hard and were so disreputable in appearance that she hesitated to question them. I'm sure Mary Mason wouldn't live in a section like this, Nancy decided. Without warning, she came to a dead-end street, which brought her to an abrupt halt. She managed to turn in the narrow roadway and was just ready to shift into forward gear when she caught her breath in surprise. Directly across the street, walking toward her, she saw a well-dressed young girl. There was something familiar about the figure, and Nancy studied the girl intently, taking care to keep hidden behind the steering wheel. At first, she could not believe her eyes, and then she realized that at last her search had been rewarded. The girl was Mary Mason. Chapter 13 A Surprise Can it be that Mary Mason lives in this neighborhood? Nancy Drew asked herself in surprise. There could be no question as to the identity of the girl, for she was now close enough for Nancy to see her face distinctly. She wore a neat silk frock, simple in line, but unmistakably new and expensive. Nancy's first inclination was to call to her, but upon second thought, she decided that such a course would be foolish. It was doubtful that the girl would tell her anything she wanted to know, and by waiting and watching, she might learn something to her advantage. Accordingly, she crouched lower behind the steering wheel of her roadster, hoping that she would not be observed. Unaware that she was being watched, Mary Mason continued down the street, swaggering a trifle as she walked. Nancy saw her turn in at a dilapidated old house. She paused on the porch and fumbled in her bag for a key, then unlocked the door and entered. That's where she lives, all right, Nancy Drew decided as the door closed behind the girl. Lucky for me that I came this way. It was with considerable misgiving that she surveyed the house. From the road, the place appeared deserted. There's something mighty strange about that girl's actions, she thought. Surely she wouldn't live in a place like this unless she were reduced to the lowest sort of poverty, and her clothing doesn't indicate that at all. While Nancy was debating what to do next, she heard the rumble of a delivery truck. Glancing up, she was astonished to see it come to a stop in front of the house Mary had entered. Taylor's store, Nancy murmured, reading the red sign on the outside of the delivery wagon. Why, that's the largest department store in River Heights. I wonder why it's stopping here. Evidently, the driver was somewhat nonplussed at the appearance of the dwelling, for he studied the number for a moment, glanced at a paper in his hand, and then scratched his head in a puzzled sort of way. I guess this must be the place, all right, Nancy heard him mutter. He shut off the motor and climbed out of the van. Going around to the back, he unlocked the rear doors and took out a number of packages. They were all sizes and shapes, but one was round like a hat box, and another looked as though it might contain a dress or a coat. In all, there were seven packages. My 
Goodness, those things can't all be for Mary, Nancy told herself. Surely she can't afford them. The driver of the van hurried up the walk to the house and knocked firmly on the door. There was a long wait, and it was not until the man had called out impatiently, Taylor's delivery, that the door swung open on its rusty hinges. Nancy saw Mary Mason take the packages. She then closed the door, and the driver went back to his wagon. He climbed in, started the engine, and went clattering on down the street. I'd like to see the inside of those packages, Nancy told herself, but I can guess what they contain. It beats me where that girl gets the money for all her finery. Of course, she might buy on credit. She realized that such a possibility might put an entirely different face on the situation. If it were true that Mary had charge accounts at the various stores, her sudden acquisition of elegant clothes could be explained. I don't believe a store in town would offer her credit, Nancy reasoned. She had no intention of permitting the question to go unanswered. Hastily shifting gears, she started after the delivery wagon which had turned the corner and was traveling northward. Oh, I hope I haven't lost him, Nancy thought anxiously. As she turned the corner, she caught a glimpse of red far up the street and was certain that it was the Taylor delivery auto. Speeding up, she soon overtook the wagon, but contented herself with following close behind for several blocks. It was not until both cars were well out of the slum district that the driver stopped. This was the opportunity Nancy had sought. She pulled up behind the delivery wagon and waited until the man came back from the house where he had delivered a small package. Are you the delivery man from Taylor's? Nancy asked by way of an opening. Sure, can't you read the sign? The driver returned carelessly. Nancy ignored the jibe and gave the man a smile, which disarmed him at once. What can I do for you? he demanded more graciously. Have you delivered any packages to a person named Mary Mason? Oh, that girl who lives down in Dockville? Sure, I just dropped off seven of them there. I hope you got your money, Nancy said slyly. I sure did, the driver returned with a broad grin. Every cent of it. None of these here COD gals can slip it over on me. It was on the tip of Nancy's tongue to ask another question, but the driver climbed into his seat and drove away, leaving her to gaze thoughtfully after the retreating delivery wagon. What she had learned left her more perplexed than ever. From what the delivery man had said, it was evident that Mary Mason was buying finery from the stores and paying cash. Again, the question that had troubled Nancy from the very start loomed up. Where had the girl secured her money? It's beginning to look suspicious, Nancy told herself a trifle grimly. This may not be the Lilac Inn mystery, but it is a mystery nonetheless. I may have two cases on my hands. She knew that Mary came of a poor family, and it was highly improbable that she had relatives who were providing her with funds. The girl had no employment, and what was even more significant, she did not seem to be interested in finding work. Otherwise, she certainly would have gone to Lilac Inn at Helen Corning's suggestion. Were these clues, or were they not? I must proceed cautiously, Nancy assured herself. I might get myself into serious trouble by falsely accusing her of a crime. So far, the evidence certainly isn't sufficient to warrant any actions. Nancy had stood so long at the curbing that passers-by were beginning to stare at her curiously. Coming back to reality with a start, she stepped into her roadster and, after a little hesitation, headed for home. I don't believe there's any use going back to see Mary today, she decided glancing at her watch. It's nearly luncheon time, and Mrs. Carter will be expecting me. I probably wouldn't gain anything by talking with Mary anyway. She wouldn't admit a thing. 
I must think out my line of action carefully before I try to interview her. As Nancy drove slowly toward home, she continued to mull over the facts she had obtained. If only she could correctly interpret the information. In reviewing everything she knew about Mary, she recalled that when the girl had called at her home to secure work, she had appeared earnest enough. Apparently she had come into her money since that date, and had consequently lost her desire for employment. The thing that puzzles me is how she happened to get money just about the time of the jewelry robbery, Nancy mused. Of course, there may be no connection, and again there may be. I remember she seemed startled when I mentioned that my father was a criminal lawyer. It seems to me she wouldn't have acted that way if she hadn't been up to something dishonest. And yet, in all fairness to Mary Mason, Nancy was forced to admit that in her eagerness to find a clue, she was getting the cart before the horse. It was true the girl had refused employment at the Drew household, seemingly because she was afraid of Nancy's father. But at the time, the Crandall jewels had not been stolen. Perhaps her money had been secured from a previous dishonest deal. If such were the case, Nancy, in trying to pin the Crandall robbery upon her, was following another false clue. Oh, it's all a dreadful mess, Nancy thought in despair. Every day, in every way, I'm getting in deeper and deeper. Chapter 14 New Information It was not until late that evening that Nancy Drew was given an opportunity to tell her father what she had learned at Dockville for he was detained at the office on a special case and did not come home for dinner. Well, Nancy, he said after he entered the house shortly after ten o'clock, sorry to be so late, but I think I have some news for you tonight. Nancy was eager to tell her own story, but she decided to let that wait. Something about the mystery, she inquired hopefully. Yes, I learned a few facts which may throw a new light upon the affair. Oh, I hope the tip is bona fide this time, Nancy sighed. I've been trailing false clues so long I'm getting tired of the sport. What did you learn? Well, I promised to find out what I could about Viola Granger. I looked it up at the courthouse and found that I was correct about her prison record. But of course that doesn't prove that she was the one that took the jewelry. No, but she was at the inn at the time of the robbery and Mrs. Willoughby and her friend mentioned the peculiar way she scrutinized them as they entered the dining room. That all looks suspicious. Then I learned another thing. What was that? Viola Granger appears to have come into considerable money lately. At least I was told in confidence at the bank that she made large deposits during the last week. Do you know the amounts? Yes, I made it a point to find out. On the 12th, she deposited $10,000 in a savings account. And on the 14th, something over 5000 The 12th, you say? That was only two days after the robbery. Precisely. Oh, dear. This complicates everything, Nancy sighed. Honestly, it seems as though everyone in River Heights is coming into money suddenly. It's a complicated case, Nancy. But really, I thought this clue might simplify things a trifle. Nancy shook her head. It seems to me it only makes it worse than before. She remained silent for a minute, and then said slowly, Dad, doesn't it strike you that if Viola Granger were really guilty, she would be afraid to make bank deposits so openly? Yes, Carson Drew admitted. I thought of that. Do the police know about her money? Not to my knowledge. Of course, they questioned her perfunctorily along with the others, but I don't believe they learned anything of interest. You haven't told them about the bank deposits? No. The president of the bank gave me the information in confidence. I doubt that the police would be interested in the information anyway. They have concentrated all their efforts into building up a case against Mrs. Willoughby. 
They seem determined to pin the robbery on her, whether she's guilty or not. I think they should sift all the facts before trying to decide who committed the crime. The case is a little too big for the police, Mr. Drew observed with a smile. I understand they grilled Mrs. Willoughby for several hours last night. Oh, how mean! At least, oh, for Emily's sake, I hope nothing will come of that. They're trying to wring a confession from her. Persistence like that is all right for hardened criminals, but I'm sure Mrs. Willoughby isn't in that class. Do you think she had anything to do with the robbery, Dad? I'm rather inclined to believe she told us the truth that day she called here, Nancy. Unfortunately, Mrs. Willoughby is very excitable, and the police confuse her easily. Naturally, that throws suspicion upon her. Are you inclined to believe Viola Granger took the jewelry? I'm frank to admit I haven't arrived at a definite theory, Nancy. However, it begins to look as though this Granger woman may have had something to do with it, provided I'm right about Mrs. Willoughby. What you've told me about her sort of knocks my own theory into a cocked hat. I didn't know you'd progressed so far as a theory, Nancy. Possibly it would be more accurate to use the word suspicion instead of theory. This morning, I happened to make a little discovery of my own. Nancy then proceeded to relate what she had learned in Dockville concerning Mary Mason. Mr. Drew listened intently until she had finished. I must agree that it does look very queer when a poverty-stricken domestic buys expensive gowns from the best stores in town, he said quietly. Of course, that fact alone isn't enough to definitely connect her with the robbery. No, but it is a clue, don't you think? Perhaps. It won't do any harm to keep your eye on her. I intend to do that, and I want to find out everything I can about her. And Viola Granger may be the guilty person after all. I never saw a case which had so many loose ends. Nor did I... This afternoon I felt so encouraged. I thought I'd stumbled onto something that had a bearing on the case. And now I'm not so sure. Don't get discouraged, Mr. Drew said kindly. After all, there may be something in what you've discovered. Perhaps Mary Mason herself knows something, and someone is paying her to keep silent. There's that angle. You're certain, I presume, that there can be no mistake about her buying all those expensive clothes? I'm certain that seven boxes were delivered to her, for I saw them with my own eyes. Of course, I can't swear as to what was in them or the cost of the articles. It might be well to investigate further before making any accusations. I don't know how to find out about the dresses. That is, unless I called at the store. Do you imagine they would tell me anything? I'm afraid not. Most stores protect their customers and refuse to give out anything concerning their accounts. But you know Mr. Hodge at the tailor store, Dad. Isn't he one of the big men there? Manager. Why not ask him to trace what Mary Mason really bought and what she paid for the things? That's a rather ticklish undertaking, Nancy. You've done favors for Mr. Hodge more than once. He ought to do that much for you. He might do it for me, though I'm sure it would not be according to the store's policy. Oh, bother their old policy, Nancy returned impatiently. He ought to be glad of a chance to help solve the mystery. Will you ask him tomorrow? Yes, if you want me to. Mr. Drew smiled indulgently. Oh, Dad, you think it's perfectly silly, don't you? Nancy demanded, somewhat nettled at her father's smile. Not at all. Mr. Drew responded quickly. I was just thinking how you always manage to get your own way. Not always. Will you see Mr. Hodge the first thing in the morning? Yes, and while I'm about it, I'll call several of the other leading stores for you. <gasps> Fine! How about the pawnbrokers? The pawnbrokers? Nancy questioned, not catching her father's idea. Yes. If this Mason girl actually took the jewels herself and was not a chance eyewitness of the robbery, she'd have to convert them into cash some way. Through the pawnbrokers would probably be the easiest way. 
Of course. It was silly of me not to think of that myself. There are three in River Heights. If you want me to inquire, I'll make it my business to drop in tomorrow morning. Oh, I wish you would. If we can trace the jewelry through a pawnbroker, the mystery is as good as solved. Yes, Mr. Carson Drew smiled, but I'm afraid it won't be that easy. Nancy, too, realized that only lucky chance could bring the mystery of Lilac in to a quick termination. However, she felt that she had taken a step in the right direction and would yet help Emily Crandall regain her fortune. Chapter 15 What Mr. Drew Learned What's the idea of having breakfast in the middle of the night? Mr. Drew asked the question with good-natured gruffness as he yawned sleepily. Why, look at the clock. Oh, it isn't even seven o'clock yet. I'm sorry, Nancy apologized guiltily as she poured his coffee. You see, it was this way. I knew you had a big morning ahead of you, and I wanted you to get an early start. So it would seem, young lady. But as it happens, I haven't any special case coming up in court today. Dad, you haven't forgotten what you promised to do for me. Carson Drew, who was fond of teasing his daughter, pretended that he did not know what she meant. You were to go see Mr. Hodge and the pawnbrokers, Nancy reminded him severely. Then she saw the twinkle in her father's eyes. Oh, you're trying to tease me. I won't forget to see them, Mr. Drew promised soberly. And if you should find out anything important, please let me know right away. All right, I will. After her father had left the house, Nancy Drew helped clear away the breakfast dishes and gave a few orders to Mrs. Carter. She then went to her room to straighten up and gather together a few things which needed mending. Bringing her sewing downstairs, she curled up on the Davenport and tried to occupy herself with her work. But try as she would, she found it impossible to settle down. Every time the telephone rang, she jumped to her feet and ran to answer it. Oh dear, she thought restlessly. I know Dad won't call for an hour or two anyway, but I seem to be all on edge. I think I'll run out and see Emily Crandall this morning. It will help pass the time, and she'll probably need cheering. Dropping her sewing, she dashed out into the kitchen to tell Mrs. Carter that she was going for a little drive and would be back in half an hour. The morning air was cool and crisp, and as Nancy drove toward the cottage on the lake, she felt refreshed. Walking up the path with a carefree stride, she knocked on the front door. Almost at once it was opened by Emily. Oh, Nancy Drew, the girl cried excitedly. I'm so glad you came. Do come inside. Tell me, have you good news? Nancy's face clouded. She wished with all her heart that she could give her friend encouragement. I haven't anything definite to report yet, she returned quietly, but I'm hoping to have something soon. Oh, Nancy, you must help me. If you can't do it, no one can. Emily's face clouded, and she clutched Nancy by the arm. Everything depends on getting those jewels back. Dick's future and my happiness, and then there's poor Mrs. Willoughby. The police are trying to brand her as a thief. Oh, it's too dreadful. Don't give up hope, Emily. I'm doing everything I can. Oh, you've been wonderful, Nancy. I wasn't blaming you for a minute. I know I shouldn't expect you to solve a mystery when the police and professional detectives can't do it. I may do it yet, Nancy said resolutely. I haven't given up. Oh, I'll be indebted to you forever if you get my jewels back, Emily promised rashly. If I do, I'll not exact such high pay. And Nancy smiled. By the way, is Mrs. Willoughby here? No. She went to River Heights early this morning. A detective came after her and took her to headquarters for more questioning. I feel so sorry for her. They haven't given her a day's rest since the robbery. You think a great deal of her, don't you, Emily? 
Indeed I do. She's always looked after me like a mother. Do you know anything about her finances? Her finances? What do you mean? Well, to put it bluntly, has she ever been in need of money? Recently, I mean. Oh, yes. She always worries about debts. Though I guess she manages to get them all paid in some way. Mrs. Willoughby craves pretty things, but her income isn't sufficient to meet all her wants, and that's the rub. She buys more than she can pay for. As she spoke, Emily glanced anxiously at Nancy and noticed her sober expression and decided that she had told too much. I hope you don't think Mrs. Willoughby had anything to do with the robbery, she added sharply. Why, she wouldn't touch a penny of my fortune. I'm sure she wouldn't, Nancy returned soothingly. She could see that Emily was overwrought. I intend to help her if I can. Haven't you any idea who took the jewels, Nancy? Well, I have several ideas, but I'm not sure any one of them is a good one. However, I think I can promise you that I will solve the mystery during the next few days, if I ever solve it. If only the police don't arrest Mrs. Willoughby before that time, and Emily began to pace the floor. Nancy cheered her friend as best she could. When she left fifteen minutes later, Emily was calm again. I just know things will come out all right, she told Nancy bravely as she accompanied her to the roadster. You've never failed to solve a mystery yet. Nancy Drew had stayed longer at the cottage than she had intended, and once on the road, she drove rapidly to make up for lost time. Her talk with Emily Crandall had made her more determined than ever to find out what had become of the Crandall jewels. Though she was inclined to believe in Mrs. Willoughby, she was keen enough to realize that the evidence against her was extremely damaging. Unless the evidence soon pointed strongly in some other direction, the police would have Emily's guardian behind the bars. Emily would suffer dreadfully from the humiliation, Nancy thought, and even if she were later proved innocent, it would ruin Mrs. Willoughby's social standing. Driving up the boulevard, she caught a glimpse of her own home, and was surprised to see her father's car parked in the driveway. Oh, I wonder if he found out anything about Mary Mason, she asked herself eagerly. Bringing the roadster to a halt beside her father's sedan, she sprang out and ran toward the house. Carson Drew, who had seen her from the window, met her on the porch. Oh, Dad, did you find out anything? Nancy demanded before he had had an opportunity to speak. Mr. Drew nodded. Come into the house, he suggested quietly. It may not be wise to let the neighbors into all our secrets. Oh, you're right, Nancy laughed. She followed her father into the living room and plumped herself down in an easy chair, which all but enveloped her in its luxurious depth. What did you find out? she inquired impatiently. Well... I saw Mr. Hodge as you wanted me to. At first, he didn't take very kindly to the idea of looking up this Mason girl's account. Don't tell me he refused. No, he finally agreed to tell me what I wanted to know, provided that we keep the information confidential. Of course. It seems that you were right about the girls buying clothes. I knew I was, Nancy declared triumphantly. According to Hodge, she's been buying scads of things lately, mostly unnecessary articles. Did you find out what she paid for them? Yes. Carson Drew took a slip of paper from his pocket and glanced at it. A hat, fifteen dollars, dress, forty-five fifty, shoes, fifteen, scarf, five, belt, two fifty, perfume, eight, pocketbook, ten ninety-eight. Imagine paying eight dollars for perfume, Nancy exclaimed, and nearly fifty dollars for a dress when she hasn't even a position. The whole thing comes to more than a hundred dollars, Mr. Drew observed, 
studying the figures. And she paid cash? The packages were sent COD, just as you thought. She paid for them when they were delivered. Did you call at any of the other stores? Yes, at the River Heights department store and at Heidelberg's. They had never heard of her at the River Heights department store, but at Heidelberg's I found that she had bought a dress. She must have gone back and bought it after I met her there, Nancy said excitedly. Probably she was afraid I'd see her buy it. That might be. What did she pay for the dress, Dad? Sixty-five dollars. Why, I wouldn't think of spending that much for a dress myself. Where does she get the money? I think it looks mighty suspicious. It does look odd, Mr. Drew agreed. But there's one weak spot in your hypothesis. Besides my suggestion of the other day that someone is paying her to keep her silent. What is that? This Mary Mason may have come into her money in a perfectly honest way. I visited all the pawnbroker shops this morning, and I'm sorry to say I didn't find a trace of the Crandall jewels. Would you know the jewels if you saw them, Dad? Yes, I'm sure I would. I saw them a number of years ago, and I pride myself on having a certain eye for beautiful jewels. Even if they had been removed from their settings, I would recognize them instantly. Did you describe Mary Mason to the pawnbrokers? Yes, I gave them the best description I could. I've never seen the girl myself, but I recalled what you had told me about her. The pawnbrokers were quite certain they had never seen such a person. I was afraid we'd not be able to trace the jewels that easily, Nancy sighed. If that girl had anything to do with the robbery, she must have gone out of town with the loot. Perhaps we'd better put a detective on the case. Oh, don't do that, Nancy protested quickly. Please let me work this out in my own way. Give me a week or ten days. If I can't get anywhere in that time, then you can call in a regular detective. Good enough, Mr. Drew agreed, unless that girl slips through our fingers. I'll see that she doesn't, Nancy promised emphatically. I believe I'm on a track now that will lead to an arrest before another week is over. Just whose, we can't be sure, she added soberly. Perhaps Mrs. Potter's, though I confess that seems unlikely. We'd better look further into that, though. Perhaps Mrs. Willoughby's, but I hope not for Emily's sake. She's a good kid, Dad, and it would break her heart if her guardian had done this thing. Perhaps Mary Mason. Perhaps Viola Granger. I haven't yet found out where she went after she left Lilac Inn that day. Perhaps someone else we haven't suspected. Yes, it's complicated. But good luck to you, Nancy. And now you better get a little rest to clear that brain of yours. This is your host, Catherine Lopez Luker. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Stories Come to Life. Be sure to join us next time when we continue to listen to Nancy Drew and the mystery at Lilac Inn. You can find a link to our podcast on the Marshall Public Library webpage, www.marshallpl.org. I'll talk to you again soon.